foreign investors are finally gone and they left me in charge. First order of business, throw that sack of shit from Lubbock, Texas the hell out of the Royale. I never liked Texas. Welcome to Re-Engage, <laughs> where we return to a sci-fi show we all have a very strong connection to, Star Trek The Next Generation. We re-engage with the series one episode at a time and reconsider Star Trek from a new perspective. I'm very excited to talk about this episode, episode 11 of season two, The Royale with Cheese, with you, my <laughs> wonderful Brit Cultural Bridge ladies and gentlemen. How are you all doing? Kate Yeager, what's going on? Oh, you know, I'm hanging in there. I like your I like your intro. A little dig on Mr. Texas himself. Nicely done. Yeah. Not uh, only is the character awful, but the state still But sucks. the state is terrible. Yeah, right. So, oh, fuck it. It's great. Yeah. We're all going to die. Uh, Eric, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Uh, we're both upbeat and doomsday-ish today, it seems like. Well, I, I mean, it's 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 very telling that the episode takes place in a casino. I'm happy to be here. Good to see you all. And Jimmy G, how are you, sir? I'm pretty good, but let me ask you a question. What's that? <laughs> Have you marbleized your tabletop, or did you tie-dye it? <laughs> Neither. Ooh. It is a in battle mat. That I just got in the mail from WizKids uh, well that done. I can play Dungeons and the Dragons on it. I should, I should put nice the miniatures on it so it wouldn't be quite so strange. Uh, but well, you'll have to do that before the episode's over. Yeah, right? We, this is a weird enough episode that the Jabberwock could show up. <laughs> so <laughs> I get that. Yeah, right? Uh, you were talking yeah. about the Lewis Carrolls. This episode is, of course, the Royale. It was first broadcast March 27th, 1989. A couple of fun things were happening here in the world. And I say fun, you know, because it's opposite day. March 24th, 1987 <laughs> yeah. was when the Exxon Valdez oil spill occurred. Oh, shit. Uh, outside Alaska's Prince William Sound, 240,000 barrels of oil were spilled uh, in a very hard-to-reach area of the Alaskan skyline, uh, or coastline, rather. And it's uh, the second-largest spill uh, in U.S. waters. And I remember this moment just devastating pretty much everyone who heard about it. I just remember lots of pictures of sea life with uh, covered covered in oil and... Um, and then I, I think that's when I first learned that you can use um, dish soap <laughs> to clean oil off of off of animals, um, which is something you shouldn't have to learn when you're 12. Right? Yeah, it was those images of the birds and and, and uh, wildlife yeah, that the, were affected by this that I think with the toothbrushes and the dish soap. Yeah, they would always show that same you know B-roll of of the workers trying to clean them and and you know give them some semblance of life. But it was it was devastating for the area. And uh, you know I think we really learned our lesson after this and changed up <laughs> everything. Yeah, we got off of fossil fuels. Yeah, uh, really invested in. Uh, air power and, and solar power. I mean, I definitely recycled a lot after this, and I think that changed the world. Boy, did I have dish a big... soap really take off. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I have a big crate of golf balls in my uh, backseat of my car that I take down to the ocean and smack in. Yeah. Uh... And they have oil inside them. So everything's fine. Yeah. 
I'm doing my part. Uh, the other big event that happened the day before uh, this episode air was the Soviet Union had a legislative election. Uh, this was the two years before the fall of the Soviet Union in general, but this was part of Gorbachev's perestroika and uh, democratization of the USSR. And uh, it was where Boris Yeltsin came into power as the supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union. Uh, he gained a seat on that and uh, then became much more of a bigger deal in Russian politics following that. Um, but that was the biggest of uh, biggest events in history happening around that time. Let's line it up a little bit. Kate, what's been happening with Entertainment World on oh March 27th? Oh my gosh, so much. Uh, Music-wise, a great song that I haven't thought of in years, The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics oh, was number song. one, which is an unusual song to sort of raise to that level. Uh, you may remember it, say it loud, say it clear, you can listen as well as you hear. Such a good song. Um, I remember that being like a, a graduation song uh, for yes. many classes to come after that. It's got that great line, it's too late when we die to admit we don't see eye to eye which is great Damn. because it rhymes. So you know it's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember every generation blames the one before. Mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. uh, the opening lyric, which is, I hear it differently than I did <laughs> when it came out. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Fletch Lives continues to be the number one movie. Um, uh, and on March 29th, the 61st annual Academy Awards ceremony was broadcast. Rain Man won Best Picture, and y'all, this was the broadcast. Uh, it had the best Nielsen rating in five years, but was a career disaster for the producer, Alan Carr. You may remember this. Um, it it uh, had the infamous pairing of Snow White and Rob Lowe singing Proud Mary together, as well as having a production member number that featured... Um, what was introduced as the stars of tomorrow doing a number entitled I want to be an Oscar winner. Uh, and uh, that included Corey Feldman, Feldman. Lake, Christian Slater, Blair Underwood, to name a few. Um, and was uh, just a disaster um, for the producer that was involved. And if you've not seen that clip of Snow White and Rob Lowe singing Proud Mary, Holy shit, do yourself a favor. It, it, you can find it easily on YouTube. It is amazing. Uh, Eric? And if all you know is the tragic end of Corey Feldman, please seek out this, his Michael Jackson period. Yes. For just some of the most pleasurable career-ruining moments of all time. Absolutely. Uh, the telecast was also remembered for being the final public appearance of Lucille Ball. So uh, she, she wow. passed away um, a little bit after this broadcast. Um, and I have to go back in time for TV because we took a bit of a, a Star Trek took a bit of a break. And I somehow missed last week that we had missed on March 10th, the series finale of Webster, <laughs> wow. where he gets beamed on board the Enterprise and meets Worf. I watched it, so you don't have to. Wow. Uh, you Cannon. can find it. It's terrible. Um, it does include several background players from Next Generation that you will immediately go, oh, it's that guy. <laughs> or, oh, it's that it's that lady. Um, but uh, Webster gets... Uh, he, he 
takes his joystick too far <laughs> and ends up on the bridge of the Enterprise and then manages to like talk about his years of the television program with Worf in sort of a, yeah, this one time this happened. And then they would show like clips of the things that happened. But that was the series finale of Webster. And I can't believe I, I almost missed it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. I feel terrible for everybody involved. I didn't know that existed. Jimmy, how did we miss that in our series finales uh, episode of Lazy Holy, Music? I was fortunate day. enough to live in Germany at the time, so we didn't get Webster, and uh, so that wasn't on my radar. It's on me then. Apologies, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what was happening in pop culture land. Love it. I love it. Uh, Jimmy, what was going on with this episode? Uh, I know it was star date something something. <laughs> it was nailed it. Nailed it. Four two six two five point four. It was written. It says in the credits by Keith Keith Mills, but it was not right. actually written by anyone named Keith not. Mills, was it? It was not. It was actually written by Tracy Tomei. Uh, but there was a pretty big rift between Tracy and um, Maurice Hurley over the structure of the story. Maurice Hurley. Uh, felt that it was um, he, he didn't he didn't appreciate the original script which he thought was had way too much surrealism uh, and, and too much comedy and to what he he said was a subtle satire um, and that it was basically just a ripoff of um, uh, original series show uh, a piece of the action which if you're a TOS fan it's one of the the shows that that stands out in the uh, the series. And it was no small rift that happened here. Um, one, Tomei took his name off of writer credits and, and went by Keith Mills. But if, you, if you're if you paying attention to the credits at the, the beginning, Tomei is uh, billed as creative consultant. That was, that was a result of this rift. Uh, he stepped away from being a writer and having direct hands on the creative process and was, became a non-exclusive uh, creative consultant with uh, uh, contracted for three more episodes of which he would only do one more. Wow. Uh, and that was Manhunt coming up. So, um, you know, Maurice really exerted himself and Tomei was, it was cut out from TNG. That is nuts. Yeah. And, uh, and over it, this script. And apparently it was a much weirder, more drug right. trippy, surreal script, which you kind of see the bones of it in here a little bit. And I'm, I'm, yeah. I want to see I what it would have been like. I want to see it real bad. I know. Because <laughs> I know, the, the actors do such a good job being just who they are in this thing. Uh, and uh, there's some really interesting guest stars in it. Right, Eric? Well, I would say there's some very interesting guest stars. But really interesting, very interesting. Like, who am I <laughs> to pick nits about such terms? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to concentrate on four. I'm going to leave off McD cause he comes in it for a second, but like we have a ton to go through here. So I'm going to start with Leo Garcia, who, uh, we know as the, um, bellboy in, mm. uh, this particular episode. He starts strong, finishes a little early, 
but uh, gives us a nice presence throughout in in what we'll talk about a uh, a very strange uh, style he's been asked to perform in. But he had a, a interesting career. It hasn't been long. Uh, it has been long, excuse me, but he took a nice big break between playing a hotel clerk in Melrose Place in 1998 and coming back in with Clipping, Splendor and Misery, a video short, and then Model as the character Arnold in 2020. So he's still going strong. Uh, he did uh, recurring on Jake and the Fat Man and Santa Barbara back in the early 90s, so his career was going somewhere. Um, and then uh, for unknown reasons, after uh, playing a reporter in Clear and Present Danger and uh, uh, a couple of brief things on Melrose Place and Murder One, uh, he took a little break. So, uh, moving from his interesting performance here, we go to... Um, sorry. Let me... I think that break, Eric, was when he was beamed aboard the Enterprise to reminisce about his career with Worf. It was very important. <laughs> it was Emmanuel Lewis, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a guy, what a guy. All right, so next, we had Jill Jacobson, who in this episode played Vanessa, the uh, unfortunate victim of uh, hijinks, pranks, and sexual predation uh, by one of the other guest stars we'll talk about soon. She had an interesting career, very long and continuing now, uh, 80 plus credits, uh, lots and lots of uh, our favorite shows uh, from the 80s and 90s, starting with, for me, Splash. Mm. She plays the girl at the bar at the beginning that uh, Tom Hanks... uh, starts kind of drooling over and gets uh, kicked out of the bar over. Mm. Quite fun. From there, we have shows like Falcon Crest, the new Gidget she was recurring on, Sledgehammer, this and Deep Space Nine, New Heart recurring on, Days of Our Lives, Murphy Brown, all the stuff that we know and love, all the way to now. She is still working. Currently, uh, she is filming a movie called Merrily, apparently. Uh, It's going very well. And now we get to the meat of the two people that I know we were all most seriously thinking about. I mean, of course, Sam Anderson, who will talk about his career as every principal and comedically minded federal agent in film history. (laughs) Uh, Possibly, most notably, in Forrest Gump as the principal who has such a close relationship with Sally Field. Um, But I first think of him as the principal in Growing Pains. Right. Uh, who was always getting uh, Kirk Cameron and Boner uh, in trouble for all the jams they stuck in. Sylvester Stabone. Yeah, Sylvester Stabone, Boner, the Boner champ. Uh, and from there, he was recurring, uh, but always in different roles in all kinds of shows. Like Murder, She Wrote, he was in five episodes as five different people. Uh, I recently saw him in WKRP. I watched the whole series again. He's in it four times as four different people. Um, it's really hilarious. So he did the assistant manager in this the same year. He did 21 Jump Street, Hooperman, Alien Nation, and La Bamba over the course of 18 months there. Like, that's super fun. Before that, Cagney and Lacey, Golden Girls, Valerie, Hardcastle and McCormick. It's ridiculous. That's like every show in the 80s you're just listening. Every show. Newhart, Tales from the Dark Side, Dallas, Magnum (laughs) P.I., Hill Street Blues. (laughs) Uh, he's a regular on something called Mama Malone, which I really have to go see now. T.J. Hooker, like Remington Steele, come on. Wow. 
Now, our last guest star that we are talking about right now is the only one whose name I knew going into this. I heard that accent. I go, that is Noble Willingham. Noble Willingham made an entire career in the 70s, 80s, and 90s playing that one redneck. <laughs> he played that one poor redneck. He played that one super rich redneck. He played that one funny redneck. He played that one racist redneck. But he always played that one redneck. Uh, he passed away in 2004 after being incredible in things like City Slickers and Good, and good Morning Vietnam. I've been saying, that's a good Yahoo, son, to people for like 30 years now because of one Noble Willingham. The howling genre monster he's in all this stuff. Uh, of course, people will recognize him from his last great recurring role in a not-so-great series. Walker, Texas Ranger. He was in 155 episodes of that. But I think of him more often in things like uh, very small roles where he was there to just be very strange. Hudsucker Proxy comes right to mind. Oh, who is he uh, Hudsucker? Oh, he's Zebulon Cardoza. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Go back to the beginning and give it a watch. You're going to fucking love it. The one that I always remember is The Distinguished Gentleman with Eddie Murphy. He plays Zeke Bridges, uh, who uh, is one of the big um, donors to the uh, Distinguished Gentleman's campaign, if I remember correctly. Uh, he's the one who keeps saying, some bitch, all the way through it, which is... Uh, Really fantastic. He's the boss in that of Mice and Men with Gary Sinise and John Malkovich, oh. uh, which is so fantastic. Article 99 is one of my favorite like liberal dream movies. Um, everything he ever did. Last Boy Scout. Uh, going back into the 80s further, you get into the Young Riders. Uh, brothers. Do you remember the TV series Brothers about the three uh, brothers <laughs> in, I think, Philadelphia that opened a bar? And it was a former football player, a like right-wing hunter-type guy, and their gay brother. And the three of them opened a bar together. In Which one was he? He wasn't. He was uh, one, of the, one of the customers at the bar. But I, he was in this show. And this show was one of the first like late-night comedies I remember staying up and watching as a kid. Um, That's amazing. For just, just an in- incredible, incredible career. Yeah. Right? And so the fact that, that he had so much in Texas Walker Ranger. I mean, I just, again, just yeah. fuck Texas. <laughs> fuck Texas, man. <laughs> Cutter to Houston. He played the mayor, Warren Jarvis of Texas. Fuck that. <laughs> Dallas. Dude's I mean, a hazard with that career. Confederate shit. I don't know. Maybe it, it was wasn't a good that great because he's at least Texas. One more WKRP in Cincinnati. That, that's a recurrent theme in this group of guest stars. Thanks for listening, everybody. Go watch Brew Baker and see Noble Willingham in action. It's it's amazing. I think I do feel like they chose these actors partly because they had n- been known as these recurring roles. That's why this almost felt like an episode of The Love Boat or something like that. That where you're like, all right, well, this is we just get to see this ensemble react to another different ensemble, uh, and that's where the sur- sur- surreality and and satire comes in. But let's get into. Oh, I think totally. I I think. You know, if you want to talk about it, like uh, Sam Anderson or Noble Willingham was in Chinatown, was in Paper Moon, is in some of these movies and and TV series that this style was based on. So that's super cool. Yeah, I like absolutely uh, genius casting uh, in that way. Um, 
but we start this episode uh, because the Klingons give a hot tip saying that there's some debris in this previously unmapped system. And it's a nasty plan. And it's and that's right. We get this wonderful <laughs> scene with Jordy. I think this might be Jordy's only scene in the episode. Uh, and he is just this is a nasty ass episode. So much about the details that he gives about this planet are actually impossible. That was one of the things I saw. <laughs> uh, the way they quote uh, what the temperature is, it's actually below absolute zero and is is therefore impossible. Uh, also, the age that they give for this planet uh, is older than what we think the universe is. So, a couple of little script snafus there. Um, and then we go into the ready room and we get a little bit of a history lesson from Picard, hot on the tales of being an archaeologist. He's also a amateur mathematician. I was told there'd be no math. I was pretty <laughs> upset by that. <laughs> I feel like that's what Riker's saying here. He's like, I don't know. I don't. I didn't remember this part uh, in the uh, academy. Um, but he's toying with Fermat's theorem, uh, and basically explains it all for you in the episodes. I won't do it, but it's 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 a nice setup for being able to pull the threads out of puzzle uh, that uh, and, and and how satisfying that can be. Yeah, I decided to come to terms with uh, Captain Picard, Math Wiz. Uh, and I was just like, I guess, you know, he has to be a pretty impressive dude to get the captain chair on the Enterprise. And then I started to think about people like Jimmy Carter. And I'm like, okay, you know, Angela Merkel. I'm like, okay, these, these are people who are extraordinary in modern times, the way that Thomas Jefferson, we think of, you know, and other slaveholding assholes were uh, extraordinary in, in their own time, you know, with the working knowledge in six or seven languages, the, the kind of thing we don't expect from statesmen or generals anymore, but it used to be pretty common. So it's, I, I decided to enjoy the fact that Jean-Luc apparently can do everything. I like the idea of uh, that this is downtime to a certain extent too. And so like, <laughs> yeah. a lot of being on the ship has got to be boring, even if you are in command. And so he... He even says like it's just it's nice to have something to think about like he's been doing a couple of times during this this season um but then they find the debris and they're going to beam it on board for analysis they go to that doesn't seem like a bad idea right <laughs> it's like this is the awfulest planet in the world uh theta eight or whatever it is what could go wrong um but it makes it you know a really nice prop entrance uh jimmy what did you think of this debris that they brought on board the NASA debris, the NASA debris was uh, it was cool to see a little bit of Americana on on Star Trek, uh, and I believe it's the first time we saw any reference to uh, the aeronautical agency of of our world represented there. Um, so it, it kind of it, it was intriguing um, one because you got to see it, and then two it was like how the hell did that make it out here? Yeah. Yeah. So it set up a nice little uh, dun dun dun. It was a good uh, stinger, right, for this cold open. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of of uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, as well, of like that idea of like what happens when the things that we sent out, you know, and it was, had all these things like what are you? And you're asking all these questions. It was really great. The prop itself, though, I, let's talk about that for a second because it does almost feel like it's a, it's cut out with like a kid being like oh yeah this is what it would look like if you got like a right. ripped piece of paper like when you burn paper 
when you're a kid to make it look like it was like a pirate thing. It, <laughs> you go, like, oh, it needs a little bit more. Yeah. Then we'll burn. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was impressive, and the 52 stars, uh, and the you know the way the it's a nice touch. it was just a little bit strange. We'll get to that uh, once we. Do you think Puerto Rico made it in finally? I'm gonna guess it was Quebec. They seceded from Canada and wanted to join the U.S. <laughs> that would never happen. Uh, so after the credits roll, uh, we pick it back up with uh, what is going on uh, with a conference room scene. Trying to figure out where this came from. How could it possibly get out here? Wesley calls in as they're discussing all this that they found a structure on the planet, uh, which, as we said, is super uninhabitable. Like there's ammonia tornadoes. Ammonia storms. It's awful. Uh, and so there should be no like actual Jersey. living structures on this planet, but that's what Wesley calls to. And I love that there's this, this business of, of not, uh, there's no, there's no dialogue to support it, but Picard's like, well, let's go try and figure out what this is. Like, this is a new fun thing. Yeah. I, I'm surprised at how not suspicious they are of this thing. <laughs> like that it's, there's just a random building surrounded by breathable air doesn't sound like a trap to me let's go <laughs> let's go look at it like it's right. just a questionable and, decision and send a minimal crew uh and that should be your security officer your chief science officer and second in command yeah 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 let's thin out the ranks yeah. as much as we can i think it must work like 19 times out of 20 and those just never became episodes because they're you're right like there's no fear it's they they walk down here like they're used to finding giant space casinos. Well, uh, and they, they're nonplussed by the door too. I mean, like yeah. they have a moment where they're like, hmm, "Yeah, meh, meh, but we should go through it." It's just your average, you know, swinging door in the middle of a black but, mall, gaping mall. And like you said, they're not afraid of the inhospitable world that has a pocket of breathable air. They do have some trepidation about the antique revolving door. But I agree with Kate. Like, a little bit. That's, yeah. it's, it's like being afraid of the small guy that speaks for the big group of people behind him that are all bigger. Like, there's, there's something not right about that small one who, who takes a step forward. Uh, you know, I'm terrified of the ammonia storms, but then I look up and see a, a revolving door in an ocean of blackness. That's probably going to freak me out more. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm I'm kind of with Kate, and it contributed to the, the the more it doesn't feel real, right? It feels like something yeah. has been put upon here in this situation. Um, I honestly think this is the best away team makeup. This is my dream team. If the people <laughs> you, you want to have with me, right? Like these, the, there's 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 comedy chops <laughs> ready to go. There's All physical uh, uh, humor and and fighting, uh, and then uh, you know we'll get to uh, how they've got style by the end. Um, so yeah, they go through the revolving door because they're like, this is what we're here for. Why not? Nobody saw Dream Warriors. Right? <laughs> uh, but the first thing about I want to say, I, I read a little bit about the director. He he basically said that they had no budget to make this. <laughs> uh, and he was compl specifically complaining about this shot and saying like, look, it's just a revolving door in like a black studio. Like, And you can read that when, when, you, when you look at it, right? And we're all like, yeah, yeah, it does kind of look yeah. like, like a... Uh, um, you know, studio theater production. <laughs> yeah. I like Data going through the revolving door, though. There's a moment where he 
goes to like f- closely follow the person who goes in first and then he has that like whoa when the door comes <laughs> at him which just feels natural <laughs> i like that yeah. we've all been there <laughs> Yeah, correct. <laughs> he is us in that moment. I don't think the Boston Dynamic robot would have that much trouble with it, though. Because it has to use revolving doors just to get out and start dancing. Um, so they go inside, and it is a casino. Uh, circa 1980 or so, 1970. It's not really clear. It's uh, kitschy to us, definitely now. But I think it was meant to be like, you know, almost... Uh, like an 80s show talking about the 70s. Like it was not supposed to be that far <laughs> in the past uh, when this was first broadcast. Um, and a lot of Vegas still looks like that. Right? No, it totally does. Uh, and there's people everywhere. We didn't have any life signs of anyone being here, but it's full. And there's these great shots that are pretty long of the three away team members just looking around in awe. Yeah, there's some there's some good denim happening in that casino. <laughs> some really like excellent hairstyles too. It's 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 worth a pause just to see everybody. Uh, I feel like they wardrobe had fun. <laughs> Vegas by way of Branson. Yes, yes. Uh, I did like the varied extras too. Like there were uh, a lot of different pe- looking people uh, throughout this entire thing, and you see that throughout. Uh, and I, I I enjoyed that. Uh, for sure. Um, but then they go uh, to the front desk uh, because we meet our butt bellhop for the first time. And he says, well, in particular, Riker's like, well, let's not be in a hurry. We don't got to go anywhere. It's, you know, let's, let's take a look around. It's just a casino in the middle of nowhere. We're not in any danger. Right. And then he does try to call in uh, using his communicator and it doesn't follow through. And, and data and data just says like, hey, according to regulations, we need to get the F out of here. Um, and uh, they don't. He's like, yeah, let's go look around. Let's, let's see what's happening. Yeah, might be some chicks. We see the bellhop. He says, you, you know, oh, you gentlemen, you got to check in over there. They go to the front desk, and that's where we meet our assistant manager. Uh, and this scene is super fun. Uh, I just love seeing, and it's this great fish out of water thing that is done in Star Trek over and over again. It's basically the entire plot of Star Trek IV. Um, taking people who are from the 24th century and uh, in the United Federation planets and having them react to real world people. What did you guys think of this scene? Jimmy, I'll look at you. Uh, I, it was fun watching uh, the, the assistant manager interact with them and then the little side that they do. Um, that was you know very Greek because it, they weren't trying to hide it at all. It was really like, this is for you. <laughs> yeah right when the bellhop Please comes in don't talk during my performance <laughs> like I... the back and forth that just so obviously we're not keeping secrets um so it which was another clue like it, it, i don't think that was bad writing or directing it was that was a clue for the audience that there's something else going on here i live for those little in scenes um, because of the music, yeah. the, mu- the <laughs> moment they start talking about Rita, that s- sexy saxophone comes up, and the acting is just so intense. And all I wanted was more of that in this episode because every single time they broke away to those like just the heightened reality and the intense acting and the like, Rita's a big girl. Don't worry about that. Ah. There's even one later on where the music goes like. Oh, it's so good! It's so good. Right. 
Yeah. I wonder if that was cut from the more surrealistic version where you actually got to see people playing instruments while it happened and like just to make it more David Lynch. Right. That's super fun. I want it. It does mess with the style, right? So like as soon as you start hearing that, you're like, oh, I'm in a I'm in a crime drama. And it means something differently than if it was, you know, the consistent uh, adventure theme that was going on. Right. And so, yeah, as an audience member, you start questioning right away. It tries to walk that line where one foot is on the homage side and one foot is on the parody side. Mm. And I think from time to time it it fails in its attempts. Mm. But Subtle I, I satire, what, maybe. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't quite work for me throughout, but I love the attempt. And I think that's what uh, I keep wanting to say, Mel Torme. Tracy Torme's uh, point was that, like, look, you just made it dumb. You didn't actually make this interesting like my original script was. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, th- this also has the great line where Worf, I love that Worf is leading the questioning here. He's like, well, how did you get here? Like, what, ah. what planet is this? Earth. <laughs> Right. What do you call it? <laughs> I just love that <laughs> delivery so much. He's got some fantastic deadpan yeah. throughout. Like he's just, he gives away nothing. And those eyes are so judgmental. It's wonderful. And he's so, di- like the dismiss is so great too. He's like, I'm going to go turn away from you now. You may go about your business. Um, but they check in. Uh, apparently they have a room. They never go to it. But they do get some complimentary chips which will come into uh, to factor later on. Um, and right. then they look at it, especially data. Like he looks at it. I was like, you just play poker. <laughs> we just saw you use chips a couple episodes ago. Data. <laughs> uh, he does. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is. The juxtaposition is strange. Cause you're like, he, he, no, he mentions that. He's like, Oh, is this like poker later on? Um, but then we get the scene where we meet everyone's uh, favorite, I guess this is sexist redneck uh, that he's playing here, or yes. grifter. In this particular sex, place, Grifter yeah. sexist redneck. Um, predator. Predator. Uh, Texas is his name, uh, as he's credited, I think, uh, as the character name. Um, Data says that these people don't have any life signs. They're not giving me any uh, you know, signs at all. They don't know if they're man or machine. Like this creature, for example, and I love that he calls him creature, uh, has no DNA structure within him. But he, he... You sound just like my ex-wife. I know. <laughs> and, then he, and then he looks around the room like, huh? 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 They used to kill at the Elk Club. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's where we get a little bit of like, what is, again, what is going on here? Is this made up? Are you know, these synthetic people? Uh, even though he acts, uh, or Texas here, you know, acts as as one would uh, in this setting, and eventually goes to, to uh, uh, has a bit of a connection with Data because of the weird things that Data says, um, and uh, you know, we, he goes off screen. But we'll get to meet him later. I can't wait. So uh, they can't get through uh, up on the Enterprise. They do not know what's happening. They lost communication, and Picard is starting to get nervous. He's like super grumpy that, <laughs> and like put out that Riker didn't follow protocol. Like, like his feelings are hurt in that moment. Like that it, it is just betrayal. It's weird of him not to call. Right? And Troy, he and Troy he senses, <laughs> she senses a d- disturbance in the Riker too. So no, at like first it becomes, she doesn't. She's like, he's, uh, he's, he's amused. But then, he's amused. Oh, is it a, 
right. it was a later scene. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought later. it was later. And God it's also damn it! Amazing that none of their high tech communications can break through, but Deanna can. So maybe they need to tap into some of that Deanna magic <laughs> with their communication skills. Um, because she's powerful. I think it's just because she has a, this is my theory, that she's got an extra special connection to William T. Riker. Uh, Notice how she doesn't say Worf What, what kind of connection? <laughs> Even though they end up dating too. Gosh. Ah! Man. Yeah. Uh, but no, I thought the same thing, Jimmy. I was like, we can't get through to him, but man, my telescopic, you know, uh, 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 <laughs> Professor X abilities work. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with your machines because I can feel them and they are not in trouble right now. Amused. Uh, and they are, in fact, amused. They're walking around the casino trying to figure out what's happening. And that's where Data sits down to play Blackjack with Texas and Vanessa. Um, his uh, his, his uh, card cutting skills are quite impressive. And he gives Vanessa a little like rawr, 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 eyebrow raise <laughs> after he does it. He's been practicing for poker. The fully functional wink. Right, it really is. <laughs> uh, and I, they don't seem to think of him as too odd other than newcomers. And so, you know, Texas thinks he's going to teach him how to play. But then, of course, Data does that weird accessing and his eyes go back and forth uh, <laughs> where he accesses the rules of Blackjack and repeats them uh, out loud, which, you know, which you do when you're playing games all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then we started, I, I guess what's the plot is here we figure out later but you, you do see the evidence here that Texas is trying to get Vanessa to lose all of her money so that she has to go with him right that's the basic setup here yes his yeah. his own creepy little human trafficking night <laughs> uh, her dress by the way is fantastic I'm just going to say that I was very uh jealous of that dress uh but not of the way that texas pawed at it constantly it, it was always off screen too which makes it even creepier uh data gets to wear a, a cowboy hat uh my daughter walked in while i was watching this episode and she's like why does he have a cowboy hat on it's like oh, it's it's too much to explain <laughs> it's too, it's too much. that's a good yahoo because <laughs> they couldn't afford to do another broken holodeck script yeah no shit <laughs> basically that uh and then uh he walks away when Riker uh wants to talk to him about all the fun stuff um but he gets the hat back and then we leave those characters for a while thankfully this is there's this sequence where Riker is basically like ask around see if we can find out anything and he constantly goes up to people being very polite uh which is very unriker like I, I haven't been saying like <laughs> You know, say, I was wondering if you could tell me something. And you're like, where did Riker get so polite here? Uh, but they all seem to ignore him. Yeah, I, I'm intrigued by what the parameter is for a, a character that would interact with them versus, I guess, sort of an, an NPC, right? Like, <laughs> oh, where there's. Right. And I imagine it has something to do with if they are a character in the book that has an, expand, an expanded storyline yeah. versus someone who's just there is seat filler but it is a very interesting wow. it reminded me of my hours and hours of gaming walking around trying to talk to random strangers do you know any sailors uh and just trying to get uh, you know any kind of response maybe if i combine this ruler with a plant it'll solve this puzzle your story <laughs> exactly. is way better kate <laughs> <laughs> what was your theory jimmy 
I, I didn't have any theories, but now I'm in love with this one. Like, I really would have liked to see that play out with uh, NPCs and non... It, it reminds me of the Tuesday Next series where she can interact with uh, books and she goes into Jane Eyre and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Heathcliff is not an asshole between chapters. He's actually a really uh-huh. great guy. Um, but when he's on, he has to be... <laughs> you know, and it's, it's right. one of those things where if you, uh, you know, like a what if, and you just come up with all these, like, okay... I love that idea. I was also wondering if it was because Riker was like, we got to get out of here. And that was against the plot, right? Like they're mm-hmm. like, so the, maybe the, whatever this is, if it's a simulation or if it's something more complex than that, they were just like, nope, well, we, we have to finish the plot first before we can let you get out of here. Well, my favorite was how confused they were. Yeah. When they got through the revolving door as if they had not walked enough steps to go in a full circle. I, like, I just thought maybe they're really bad at revolving doors. Like, <laughs> yeah. they could actually get out anytime. They just keep missing the exit. Like, like when an American tries to do a roundabout, yeah. and they get stuck going around in a circle for hours. Hey, kids, big bad. That is what it looks like. Like, it just, like, they just added a curtain to one side, and all they had to do was go. Like, it's not confusing. It's just missing one of the exits. <laughs> You'd think if they if they did a split screen, it would have been easy to have them emerge at the same time they go. But we also uh, get to see Worf try to push a wall real hard. Yes, I was <laughs> gonna mention <laughs> my my notes for this scene is Worf shoots at a wall. Yeah. And before that, he just tries to push it like real hard, and they're like, "That's a strong wall." And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and he says phasers ineffective on all surfaces, which means he didn't just shoot, shoot the wall. That motherfucker shot everything in the place, and nothing happened. Nothing. Right. Uh, so while Riker and Worf are indisposed shooting at walls, that's when, uh, that's when we go back up to the Enterprise, and Troy has that scene where she's like, oh my gosh, they're, they're tense now. They're trying to get out. They we feel trapped. We missed like, the, the moment where uh, I think it's Picard asks is penetration possible and i giggled like a 13 year old i never grew up uh and i was like i don't know is it (laughs) well earlier on o'brien said uh don't forget we have to have this extremely narrow access point and then he turned to Riker and went you have a green light commander and I'm like, why is Commander Riker the one who gets to have access to this extremely narrow access point? That's in his contract. Uh, because no. of Riker maneuver. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And how he flirts with Guinan. He does that with O'Brien too. Yeah. Yeah. O'Brien. It seems, uh, you know, now that we talked about Troy, now she, she can sense the, the emotional change. There should be a policy with the Federation that every starship has two Betazoids. Always one that has to go with an away party and one who has to stay because it doesn't matter how far apart they are or what kind of barriers, they can feel each other. And then you know they can use that as a, a way to always communicate. I mean, they really missed some procedural policies here. If and if you can't get Betazoids, just get creepy twins that have their own like language yeah. where they can sense they can things just about lie. each other. It, it'll make everyone feel better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, So then, then Riker's like, I'm going to get some answers out of this desk clerk. And so he goes to try to talk to 
the assistant manager again. Uh, and uh, this is where uh, he gets even more snooty. It was like, if you are unhappy with your stay, you can take it up with the manager. And uh, Riker's okay. pretty nonplussed who, here. Who Riker assumes is a he. Are we not in the Fucking 24th Riker. century? Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Hello. When is it going to happen? Um, but my little weird theory here, and uh, that is that the um, astronaut is the manager. Oh. And that's why oh. he kind of has to dodge here because he's like, oh, he's busy. Uh, and, and then he kind of walks away and ends the, the simulation a little bit right here. Where the human is? Yeah. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that too. They don't know about that yet, uh, but they do get a bad cell call from Picard, uh, which certainly felt like, you know, walking around tall buildings in Manhattan in 2001 and be like, nope, I can't hear you. What? What's happening? Not sure I can hear what's going on, uh, which you know, does, it doesn't feel right for a Star Trek. I don't know why, but the whole, like, getting some interference thing. Uh, I do like, uh, uh, Wesley says the frequencies are unstable. And Picard just yells, then find others. Yeah. <laughs> Helpful. Uh, I will say that currently, if you drive by the T-Mobile headquarters in Renton, you do not get a T-Mobile signal. <laughs> so, like, this is not out of the realm of possibility several hundred years from now. And so they talk to Data, who's got his tricorder out. I don't know why he didn't do this before, but he starts realizing that there's life, some life signs, or at least uh, some human DNA that is in this building somewhere. And uh, so Worf, Data, and Riker are like, well, it's 36 meters up. And I love Worf's line here. We can take these hydrolifts, or hyperlifts, or... Energizers. What are they called? <laughs> Turbo lifts. Turbo lifts. <laughs> we'll take these energizer lifts. They're uh, all energizers. <laughs> I like the fact that they struggle because the, the door doesn't open right away and Data kind of figures out. But moments later, huh. they know how to use a doorknob. <laughs> Which you'd think they would also get to that door and be like, open. Door open. Seems open door. Malfunctioning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Worf exactly. just walks into it because every door on the Enterprise just opens for him. <laughs> so they go into the hotel room uh, where the human DNA was detected by Data. Uh, and this is where we get pretty much what's happening here uh, on this planet. Uh, we find the uniform of a astronaut uh, from the same era that the NASA debris uh, was from they see the decomposing corpse of said astronaut uh, who they estimate had been dead for more than two centuries uh, by this time um, and this is when the communicators start to work a little bit better and they figured out how to do it and they tell Picard everything they found there's a great line where they say he died in his sleep and Worf says what a terrible way to die <laughs> so good yeah as he's got his and back to they, the camera searching the closet, too. And it's like, oh, that's such a weird yeah. aside choice, but I kind of love it. It's wonderful. And they're going through the little diary entry. Yes. One diary entry. <clears throat> and I love hearing what Jimmy had to tell us about the infighting among the writers of this episode. Because, honestly, all I could think about hearing what the astronaut wrote is the bit at the end about how this story with endless cliche and shallow characters 
I shall welcome death when it comes. And I'm like, that is a writer who has had interesting problems with producers from time to time. Right. Who's now a non-exclusive creative consultant. Yes. (laughs) That diary is very specific and very well written. Like, it is, uh, I mean, like, it's just, it does exactly what it needs to do. It should have been, like, exposition times 25. (laughs) Dead astronauts log. Yes. Uh, So that's where we basically learn that this ship was launched uh, mid-21st century. Actually, not that far from now, really. It was, I think they said 2033. 2033. That's when we get two new states. Right? So we'll have two new states by then, 52 stars. But we'll only keep them for a little while, or we add more. I, I tend to think that we get rid of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that we shed states like That after... would put us between 2036 and 2054. <laughs> like, then we go from 52 to 39. and then... it's, a, it's, a, it's a pendulum. Uh, but then, then this was one of the first attempts to leave the solar system by humans. Uh, and they lost, the, the telemetry was failed, and they lost the ship, and they have no idea where it went. The theory goes that a alien presence infected the other crew members who died. One crew member, uh, this one uh, that we see decomposing here, somehow survived. And the aliens felt bad about what happened and decided to create a world on an otherwise unhospitable planet because they felt bad. And Thanks the model, nothing. the guy must have been unconscious or at least something. So he didn't know this. He had a How about you take me with you? <laughs> How about that? Yeah. If you're so powerful, send me home. Yeah, yeah, send me home. I think of all. I think of all of the books that they could have found too. Like it could have been a Dean Coons novel. It could have been, you know, like a Stephen King. Like the the possibilities are a little uh, uh, Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I mean, we could, we could go on to saying names of novels forever, really. That's what this podcast is now, Greg. Get on board. The Meg. <laughs> the Meg. Was that the novelization of The Meg? Oh, no, 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 no. The Meg is a novel Thank from you. the 80s that I own and have carried with me over at least four different moves across the country. It's the best trash novel I've ever read, and it is worse and better than the movie. <laughs> I want to read it. Yeah, I will loan it to you. Yes, please. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so, right, everything's based on this novel that they apparently had on board. I don't know why they were reading such trash, but uh, I, I couldn't imagine a worse hell to be trapped here in a bad novel for, he said, at least four decades, right? 40 years he lived here, 38 years. That sounds pretty dystopian to me. Yeah. Um. So then Picard says, hey, we've got one thing we can do, which is puncture a hole in the thing, flood in the atmosphere, uh, and you, you'll die in 13 seconds, but you'll, you'll be okay. And this is where Pulaski has her great bit of like... She's such a ray of sunshine. She's, her good news is that she can, in theory, <laughs> unfreeze them. You know. uh, and she was supposed to, in this scene, say, I am a doctor, not a magician. Right. <laughs> That would have been a lot better. Slash worse. It's Mary really divorce Kelly. It's 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 how they have solved issues like this many many times in the past. Famously in two thousand one, all this other stuff. Of course, just make it happen. 
like in Aliens at this point was one of the more recent ones. Decompress this shit and get us out of here. Right? Um, so then Riker has that great line where he says, if you're trying to motivate us to find our own way out of here, well, you've done it. Uh, and so they, get, they leave the room. But before we leave the room, I want to talk about, there's one very funny piece of business here. Worf with the telephone. What purpose does that phone call serve other than letting us know that the kitchen is open? <laughs> like, I kept waiting for something to come back to why this phone call was important uh, other than just Worf getting to be awkward with it. Well, it reminded me that I need a snack. <laughs> right now? I wanted so McDonald's I so bad during this episode every time they talk <laughs> about Mickey D. Mickey D. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not too proud to tell you I wanted nope. a Big Mac. Oh, man. So uh, I loved it. I actually, I just thought it was just this weird bit of, it, I mean, it was really just for comedy, right? It's like what Worf is the person who's the most fish out of water uh, amongst, you know, people who are asking you to serve you, right? Like that just, I don't think that's part of the culture that he has known his entire life. And so he just, it was, it was, it was a very, um, you know, like what do these rubes do when they're on vacation type of thing? And that rudeness at the end, just the no. no slam, is just in character and also gives me the shivers as a former service worker. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, how many? I mean, sometimes you don't even get a no. They would just hang up on yeah. you. Oh, yeah. So, Picard, now armed with the knowledge that this is all based on a novel, accesses said novel and starts reading it in front of Troy. And how does it start? It was a dark and stormy night. Oh, shades of throw mama from the train. The night was moist. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he's bored in this immediately. And Troy is like, uh, can I go, please? <laughs> yeah. Leave you with your stories. Yeah. Because they start listening in to the dialogue that Riker's just got his communicator open and is hearing everything that's happening. Because guess who walks in the door when they go back down into the lobby? Mickey D, who's had it out. For this bellhop who's trying to, you know, squirrel in on his girl or something. And uh, we get this whole scene. Well, yeah, Eric, go ahead. I have no problem with this actor. He does a fine job. But if you're going to give him the kind of entrance they gave this character, and you've already given us people like Noble Willingham and Sam Anderson, you have to give us someone who tops them. And they did not do that. It was a failure of cat. Yeah. Agreed. The costume was there, the 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 gravitas was not. Yeah, you need Antonio Sabato Jr. or something in this moment. You know, Desi Arnaz. Oh, give, me, give me something crazy. Yeah. Something like that. I know. Yeah, he just he couldn't hold it. Although he does have that weird overcoat thing that hangs over his shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. Danny DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we get, uh, that's what this episode is now. We're just going to name names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just names of people that would have been better. The Statler brothers. Corbin Burnson. <laughs> <laughs> Mikhail Gorbachev. Yeah. All right. So, uh, this scene plays out in front of them and Worf looks like he wants to stop what's happening. You know, he's still got the security mind and Riker's like, no, we have to let this play out. It's the only way. Uh, and then Mickey D just shoots the bellhop in cold blood in the right lobby. In the back. <sighs> right in the back. What an asshole. What, what an asshole. 
I mean, at least he could have waited him to waited for him to come back out the other side of the revolving door and shoot him in the face. Well, right. Yeah. He says the line, "No woman's worth dying for, killing for, but not dying for." Yeah. Okay. Warrior poet. <laughs> <laughs> the man in the white overcoat, worthy fucking adversary. <laughs> Uh, the poor system manager watches all this happen, uh, and this is where Picard actually figures out some of this puzzle here uh, with the help of Riker, who says, what happens next in the plot? Oh, it's bought by foreign investors for $12.5 million, and that's where Riker says, oh, wait, that's us. We're the foreign investors. And they got to figure out how to make out that money. What a plan, what a plan. And of course they go straight to shooting craps, which makes zero sense in real life. Uh, it's never, I, I, it's the one game I, I abhor the most uh, oh. because I never understand it. It's not really a game. It's just roll dice and then have someone tell you what's happening. Oh, I love craps. It's my absolute favorite. <laughs> I do. If you do it right, supposedly... It's it gives you some of the best odds somewhere just under fifty percent. I don't do it right, uh, but it's a. I have a ton of fun just kind of keeping it to the the high uh, value bets and then fucking around with some of the really really stupid bets. Uh, spend a hundred bucks, spend a couple hours, enjoy myself. My question on this scene is Data talks about the, the dice being unbalanced. Mm. Does that mean they were loaded to begin with? Or was it just a, a like a manufacturing error where they're just a little unbalanced? I think he... it was I think it was a error of some sort that is not loaded because they they landed several different ways. I mean maybe it the, the set he was with was loaded specifically not to hit seven. Uh, but since it didn't land the same way or close to the same way a couple times, I didn't quite understand what they were implying. There I like the way he just uh, squeezes gently. Yeah. And then immediately goes into, baby needs a new pair of shoes. Ah. Ah. Complete with the snap. And that weird, awkward throw that he has. So good. Ah. I agree. I, I This is where it, I read it differently when I watched it as a kid to now because I thought when watching this as a kid that he, that data was cheating like he was actually making the dice so that he they would win um mm. but on re watching it now i'm like no he says they're unbalanced and that he's going to correct them but then he goes on to win amazingly even though and he seems to you know he he has that interchange with texas who bets against him and he thinks that you know oh i'm gonna you know your luck is gonna run out and the guy's like no you're you know data's you're you're gonna get any you know that whole exchange so Data knew that he was going to win more often than not. I think Data was confused by the second roll because he did it exactly the same way, and Data is good enough to do it exactly the same way. So Data can throw unweighted dice or correctly evenly weighted dice the same way a hundred times in a row. Oh, and then it was, his, it was his muscle was so good that he could get the result right. that he wanted? Right. That's what I'm assuming it is. That, that that's the way of cheating is just the fact that it is data and it didn't work because the dice weren't weighted. Right. So then when he evened out the, the weighted dice, then he could do it over and over and over again with the same thing. Uh, what do you think, Jimmy? Yeah, I think the dice were loaded. He says, uh, 
<laughs> he picked it up and says, these aren't uh, even, it, it seems pretty simple. And yeah. So he changes them so that uh, they can win. I mean, there's a, that, that's their way out. Like, right. It's not a moral thing. It's a, we're getting the fuck out of here thing. Uh, but my question is, and I, I might, uh, I think I'm misunderstanding. They needed to become the foreign investors and buy this thing to get out. Um, so the the program should have offered them that opportunity no matter what, because the book says they foreign investors have to buy it. So somehow the foreign investors have to have this money um, and nobody else showed up. So they're it. Uh, so, you know, had they gone to the poker table, would it have materialized the same way or to, you know, roulette or something? I, I don't know that they had to cheat or the storyline seems to suggest that they're going to get it no matter what. Yeah. The only thing that... Right? Because somebody has to buy it. The only thing that doesn't support that or it makes me question kind of everything here is because the assistant manager, when he's when they're like, oh, here's $12.5 million, uh, you broke the bank. Uh, right, right. And then he says, we own it. Now we own it. And then the assistant manager says, oh, you're the foreign investors. Like, he, he has this moment of like, oh... He didn't know. You are the right, people who are right. playing this role that... And that is still a mind fuck now because I'm like, why? Why? And why didn't the other astronaut do the same thing? Right. Although if he got out, where is he going to go? go? There's nobody there to pick him up. Well, and the the only thing that occurred to me is that if he's the manager, he can't be the foreign investors, right? This whole thing is for him. But like what I just kind of went to is the foreign investors are whoever comes to rescue that guy. Then they know it's okay to end the story. And do you know what I mean? So whoever comes there and identifies themselves as the people who are there to end the story, uh, they're the foreign investors and will get the astronaut out. That's, that's what my brain can (laughs) put together as something that kind of works with what we're presented with. Well, the assistant manager, when they first get there says, you've been expected. Ah. There's three of you you're expected. So I think there is some sort of a, like that starts the ball rolling, like whether or not his programming allows him to understand yet that they're the foreign investors. Like he knows that these three individuals of course belong in this hotel in this moment. Right. Yeah. I I like that. I, I think, I think it solves a couple of different problems, including the, why didn't they send him back? They just left him here until his people found him. You know, it's like, you'll be okay. Here's this. When your people come, we'll make it work. I think that's interesting. Well, then why was the guy, why was he surprised that they were the foreign investors at the end? Or am I reading that differently than you are, Kate? Uh, no, I think, I think he, I think it's confirmation at that point. Uh, mm. You're the, you are the foreign investors. Uh, like you've done it. You've, <laughs> yeah, you've com- completed what I needed you to complete. Especially after they become, as as Picard tells them to be, flamboyantly generous. I love that. I love shit-eating Green uh, Riker just being like, send this, you know, give this to the parking attendants, you know, tip everybody. We'll split it up all around. And He says, when the train comes in, everybody rides. <laughs> Amazing. I love that they know all of the, the parlance uh, and, be, you know, become uh, really popular. I mean, that's kind of what happens at the craps table, right? When you're making money and you're giving it away, you become the star of the casino. And I just love that uh, you get to see these 
you know, ensemble actors that we've seen <laughs> act in a very different way. Especially, especially Data. I mean, that whole line where he's like, "Baby needs a new set of shoes," <laughs> and he throws it. It's it's hilarious. That little snap he does at the end of his throw—it's really delightful. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, Spiner doing great work as always. And then they buy it up, and they're like, "Let's test our theory." They go out the door. Oh, by the way, beam us back, uh, and uh, we get a uh, you know, final scene with Ricard, uh, Ricard, R- Riker, and Picard. <laughs> Um, bringing it back to the Fermat's uh, theorem and how this was the puzzle they had us all. I like how Riker says, none of this makes sense. You know, like the math problem. Like it is a very heavy handed. Remember when we set up a bookend? That's basically it. Uh, The plot resolves. They go off uh, and uh, into the sunset uh, and I will, yeah, I will just go right to you, Eric. What do you think of your final thoughts of Royale? Well, I'm going to give this one seven and a half abandoned NASA corpses. <laughs> um, my lingering thought is that they certainly could have gone and gotten the remains of this dude and taken him with them. Uh, but you know, fuck it. It's fine. We know where he went. There's nothing to be gained from the... 700-year-old mummy or whatever, 300-year-old mummy that we can just leave here as whatever image this is collapses in on itself. All right. I love the episode. I As soon as that cloud showed up um, in the ammonia storm when they were down in the blackness and looking up, I'm like, the whole episode came run, rushing back to me from that one like little effect. I kind of felt like I knew where everything was going from then. I certainly haven't seen it in 20 years and really enjoyed rewatching it. Jimmy, what about you? Um, I think I will give it uh, six fake casinos mostly made out of curtains. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, I've seen it before. It's a thinly guised uh holodeck is broken down um i'm way more enamored with uh kate's (laughs) idea for what that story could have been um and that you know just got me rolling like what if these these things aren't even living until somebody enters and they haven't had a chance to do their stuff for 200 years and like they're like materialized like (gasps) oh And, like, this is their moment, and uh, they want to suck it up as much as possible. And uh, so it just wasn't as uh, too exciting. So six. I feel like you're describing Schmigadoon now. I haven't seen it yet. I need to see that. You're going to like it. It's on my list. All right, Kate, what about you? Uh, I'm going to give it six and a half sexy saxophone solos. Uh, because I do remember this from, from childhood, like Eric, uh, it very quickly sort of started to come back to me the moment that I saw that revolving door. Um, and I think that it is charming enough because of, uh, the dream team away team that goes, um, comedy gold. Um, but I wanted more of the, of the I guess the storyline of the Royale itself, because I dug that, that sort of juxtaposition between the, we are doing science and looking for things. And then just the overwroughtedness uh, of the acting and the, again, sexy, sexy saxophone. (laughs) I I think I like this episode. uh, I'm going to give it a, 
eight and a half demoted creative consultants. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed this when I was a kid. I like that. I like, as you're saying, this 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 weird fish out of water story for Star Trek characters. They've done it a couple of times in the past. This one's a slightly different flavor. Uh, I think it's ruined a little bit by the fact that they try to hammer in even us just trying to be like, well, this plot that you put here doesn't really make sense once you start to really examine it. And I wish they had gone more into the surreal. They don't know what's happening. We don't even know what entities did this. Uh, and, and it, you know, would have felt much more like a, um, you know, a drug trip type of surreal uh, type thing, you know, and then because I, I, we need more Star Trek acid party. And I think this could have been, the beginning of that happening uh, in the future. But beyond all that, I just, I remember this episode. It feels like going home a little bit to me. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, I just did it. It, it made me laugh then. And it made me laugh now. Uh, and the performances are, are there. And I remember not liking the, the dialogue of the, the hotel workers. And it still feels like it's put upon on purpose uh, in a specific style, and I enjoyed how that felt like a satire a bit, like as you were as 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 I hinted, and I just wish they went full on. Um, but that's it. That's the Royale with cheese, episode eleven of this wonderful season. We're about halfway through uh, this season. There's only twenty two episodes wow. in season fast. two, shortened a little bit by uh, some, I think some striking happens at the end of this episode at the end of the season. So boy. Uh, we got a lot to look forward to, and I'm excited to re-engage with you all on that one because my pants have become moist. Ooh. The night was moist like Greg's pants. <laughs> Thanks for joining our Cultural Bridge officers for this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing the mission with another episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. We want to hear from you, our listeners. If you've got questions or observations, Halen frequencies are open. Email letsreengage at gmail.com or you can follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at reengagetng to get updates on episode drops and all kinds of fun Star Trek things. Eric Gratton is off social media right now, so email is the best way to ask him a question. But you can follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on the gram. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Reengage is edited and mixed by Krista Curry at Krista from Glee on Twitter and Krista.Curry on Instagram. Logo artwork by MojoJojo97 on Twitter or Mojo97.com. The music is by the incomparable Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Stand by for Riker's Beard to re-engage.